Americans love community colleges. A 2017 survey of public attitudes about these institutions demonstrates they are, by almost every measure, trusted to deliver high-quality education and training to students. This kind of public support has traditionally translated into an open public checkbook. During the Obama administration, the federal government invested $1.5 billion over three years to expand community college training programs. This was seen as a cornerstone strategy for closing the so-called skills gap between the skills of American workers and the needs of the nation's industries and employers. In addition to career and technical training, community colleges have also carved out a role for themselves as feeder institutions for traditional four-year colleges. Most students are aware they can get many of their lower-level prerequisites out of the way at less expensive community colleges before transferring to programs at state universities. This branch of community college programming has shown itself to be less effective, with only a small fraction of those who begin the four-year degree journey completing their community college coursework and making the jump to Big State U. Our guest today has just completed a study proposing significant changes to the way that community colleges do their work in both career and technical training and as transfer programs. In the era of COVID-19, she believes community colleges need to put more emphasis on fast, flexible, non-credit skill training to speed career transitions and help workers keep up with rapidly evolving technology. Tamar Jacoby is president and CEO of Opportunity America, a Washington, D.C. think tank that promotes policy reform focused on promoting economic mobility, work, skills, careers, ownership, and entrepreneurship for low-income and working Americans. Before founding Opportunity America, Tamar was a journalist and immigration reform advocate. Among her publications are Reinventing the Melting Pot, The New Immigrants, and What It Means to Be American. Tamar Jacoby, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. It's an honor to be here, Brent. It's old home week for us, right? We are frequent collaborators. It's been a real pleasure over the last couple of years to get to know you. And one of the things I know about you is that you are an extremely busy person working in a critical field around workforce development, job training, education, and have been a major contributor, I think, to the conversations around those issues in D.C., at least, and probably elsewhere. That's very Um, kind of you to say that you're much too kind. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm not too kind. So anyway, it's been great to collaborate with you. And you you just came out with a couple new reports, and they're, they're connected to one another. One called the In- Indispensable Institution, Reimagining the Community College, and another one looking, taking what you learned in that report, it looks like to me, and, and focusing in on the City University of New York. So we're going to talk about that. I always start out this way with these podcasts, but I want the audience to know a little bit about you. And since this is about vocation, career, and work, particularly interested in hearing from the guests who come on this podcast, sort of how they got to where they are. Looking back, kind of what were the key turning points? Who were the influences that brought you to the career that you have today? Well, that's a great question. What fun. The audience can't see me, so I think the first thing to say is I have a lot of gray hair, and that ties into it's been a long zigzag path. A little bit about the steps in a minute, but you know the overall lesson. What I say sometimes when I talk to you know students about my career is I say, "Don't try this at home," meaning it wasn't really a planned track. And what I really mean is, don't overplan. That's kind of the obverse of what I'm saying. You know, the key is to know yourself and know what you care about and what you're good at, and then be strategic. Look for opportunities. 
So that's what I've done. I started out as a journalist. I worked for the New York Review of Books. I worked for the New York Times. I was the deputy editor of the op-ed page. I worked for Newsweek, where I was the justice editor. And then I got tired of having a regular job. So I went to a think tank, the Manhattan Institute, where I wrote books and did sort of media punditry. So then, you know, by now I'm like very middle age, right, at this point in the story. I went to and thought I would spend the rest of my life as a journalist. And I went to uh, Arizona to write a story about the first stirrings of the anti-immigrant movement back in the early 2000s. There was an election and I was interviewing business, labor, Republicans, Democrats, faith groups, and they were all against this, you know, anti-immigrant. It was actually one of the, it was actually one of the first sightings of a man who later became known as, as a strong anti-immigrant politician, but they weren't working with each other. And I said, I'm canceling my meetings. We're forming a coalition. And, you know, I, I, I kind of realized it was much more fun to, to be part of the train wreck than just to write about it as a journalist. So I kind of never looked back. That was, you know, nearly 20 years ago. And it's since in those 20 years, I've been much more not a journalist, not an observer, but trying to be involved in the fray. And uh, so it wasn't really a person. It was sort of, again, an opportunity that drove me. I've started two nonprofits that are small, the different topics, first was immigration, second workforce. There were small policy shops trying to change the conversation. That's what I really think is important. I mean, you do research, you do advocacy, you have convenings, but what you're really trying to do is change the conversation and, you know, shift what they call the Overton window, you know, what's kind of plausible public policy. And, you know, last word, I think, is workforce. Why do I, why now workforce? You know, I just think workforce is such an, I mean, I can say more in a minute, maybe, but workforce is such an exciting field right now. I sometimes feel like it's sort of like Silicon Valley in the, you know, early 80s. There's so much innovation going on. There's so much need for it. It's so exciting. But we're still in the early 80s. There's a lot of innovation still to go and kind of shaking out still to go and consolidating still to go. And my small organization thinks of itself as a catalyst trying to advance that. So I want to back up just a little bit. And I want you to Tell us where you went to school, just a little bit about your family and how they, how your family felt about your Oh, my career. God. Okay. I don't discount it. It's important. I went to an Ivy League college. I went to Yale. I was one of the first women at Yale. It meant a lot to me then. I now think, you know, I don't think the world should be run by people who went to Yale or Harvard or Stanford. And I think it's really important that we kind of crack that open. So, you know, I don't... I went to a meeting recently where, well, back when you could still go to meetings, and we went around the table, and all the young people at the table told me where they went to college. And I just, like I said, I can't even remember where I went to college. I mean, I don't think that's how we should be judging each other. Uh, and, um, well, that's not an insignificant achievement, though. I mean, to be one of the first women to go to an Ivy League institution, that's kind of a big deal. What did was, you major it was, in? It was painful as hell at the time. <laughs> no, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I love you. I love you. I was it cracked open the world for me. I love. I mean, again, this is sort of the contradiction in my career. I loved, you know, the world of ideas, and I loved kind of seeing how, you know, literature was connected through the ages and history and art and music. And you know, now I'm and encourage people to learn a skill at at college. I mean, I think it's sort of different in different circumstances, but no, I loved Yale and Yale was a, Yale prepared me. I didn't study anything practical. I mean, really nothing remotely practical. What was it? I was, was, was an English major. I took almost, you know, I was very yeah. heavily, but you know, sort of widespread languages, literature, history. I think it taught me how to think and write, you know, it taught me how to get to the bottom of a problem. That's what I mm. feel mm. that so many young people for example, that it worked for me, you know, haven't been trained to do, is not to sort of tell you something about it, but get to the bottom of it. 
really understand what drives things, really understand where the conflicts are, really understand if there's research over here that says X and research over here that says Y, you know, how does that fit together and what do we make of it? Sort of get, getting to the bottom, what, what I mean by get to the bottom of it. I think analyzing literature probably taught me how to do that. How did your family feel about you studying your, your was, course of study? My family was sort of remote. They were socially distanced before it was polite to be, <laughs> before it was acceptable to be socially distanced. I mean, they were fine with it. They weren't that focused on, on, you know, they were sort of proud of me, but not that focused on whether it was a good idea mm. or whether I was going in the right direction or where I was going to mm. end up. That's really interesting. Okay. So that's going to, a lot of that's going to connect to our conversation. You are a person who comes from this very broad and varied educational and professional background. And now you have written these two reports that focus on vocational education in many instances, not exclusively, but mostly. Yeah. Yeah, mostly. So you've taken that broad get to the bottom of the problem perspective and created these two reports about how to improve education within the community college system. Why this report right now? Why did you write it? So we started before COVID, and I'm going to get to COVID in a minute. I mean, and my interest traces back before COVID. But if you think about the future of work and automation and artificial intelligence and the way the world, the way technology is changing the economy, what it's doing is it's shifting the curve of what's required outward for everyone. So people who used to be able to get away with a BA now need a master's. People who used to get, be able to get away with a PhD now need postdoc. Everybody needs more. And the people who need more in the worst way are the people at the bottom who used to be able to get away with high school and now need something more. And, you know, there's one set of numbers that sums that up. In 1980, only a third of American jobs required more than a high school diploma. Only one third. Now, two thirds of jobs require post-secondary education. So it's totally shifted. It used to be two-thirds you could get by with high school alone and only one-third need a college. Now only one-third can get by with high school alone and two-thirds need some kind of post-secondary education or training. And a BA, bachelor's degree and beyond, is, you know, the ticket to the, is the royal road, right? Like that's, if you can do that, that's the best. But here's like the scary part. 80% of the young people who show up at a community college, right, want a BA eventually and only 15% make it. And there's a lot of jobs out there still, and I think there will be even into the future when robots take over more, that require people with technical and career skills, problem-solving skills, not just how to do this widget, but problem-solving skills, get to the bottom of it skills, that don't necessarily need a bachelor's. And those people, that's a real, if we don't help those people, we're heading for a world of, and I don't mean to sound like I'm those people, like it's, you know, if we don't help these Americans, we're heading for a world of education haves and education have-nots that's, you know, going to be sort of beyond imagining that, <laughs> you know, uncrossable gulf. So that was sort of before COVID struck. And COVID has only put that all on steroids because COVID has, you know, accelerated the future of work and just made this, we can talk more about that as, as we go. But, but it's really about, it's about the changing nature of the economy and the, and the workplace and the educational imperatives that creates. And, you know, sure, it would be nice if everyone could go to Yale and read Shakespeare and listen to Mozart and, you know, diagram whatever Beethoven symphonies, but we don't have that luxury for everyone right now. 
and it's people have to be able to follow their interests. Not everybody is interested in being able to diagram Beethoven symphonies. Uh, I'm not sure I would be interested in. <laughs> well, <funny. laughs> well, I know. I, 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 I say that and I think, well, yeah, that could be kind of interesting. I'm the kind of person who's interested in everything. But I mean, different types of education are, are needed for different types of people and different kinds of interests. And we shouldn't prejudge, I think, sort of what's valuable and what's not valuable. And that really cuts both directions on education. You know, we shouldn't devalue four-year college degree any more than we should devalue a associate's degree. Um, well, associate's so, degrees are almost worthless. We'll talk about those in a minute. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but the other thing is, you know, I understood why class, I mean, whatever my parents, however socially distant they were, they did teach me that sort of learning mattered and kind of the life of the mind mattered. And I think a lot of what I see in high schools when I go to high schools and, you know, is kids who don't, and even younger maybe, kids who don't understand, like, why the heck they're there? Like, why am I learning calculus, you know, or algebra or whatever you learn? You know, like, what is this ever going to do for me? And why am I reading Shakespeare? And why, you know, why am I sitting here? And I think the value of the kind of career and technical education for high school kids and in a big way also, you know, more work-based learning is People get why they want to, why they should learn that. <laughs> and then it's not that they're stupid, they're smart. But now that they have a why, they apply their smart brains to that why. So I don't think it's like people are, I don't think the people that don't do Shakespeare and Beethoven symphonies are any less smart than me. It's just like I had a sort of entry point to that. I had a why. That was the kind of person I wanted to be. I think like a different kind of education that's more focused on a goal that people understand, you know, helps them apply their brains to those problems. I don't know if you're ready to go here yet or not, but I think we may as well. I mean, one of my concerns about the way that we currently talk about post-secondary non-baccalaureate education is that we sort of channel people toward narrower credentials that rarely, if ever, get to that why question. There's not a lot of vocational thinking within schools focused on vocational training is what I'm that meaning and purpose question that you're alluding to here. No, well, I disagree. I mean, I think we should, I would like to go back and talk about the papers at some point, but I mean, so I just did a paper about what I think is one of the best, another paper, different paper, about what I think is one of the best post-secondary training programs in America. It's called FAME. It started at, at Toyota and now it's like 400 companies across America and they're training industrial maintenance techs who are the people that are one layer up above the assembly line people, these are the people who sort of troubleshoot and solve problems. Again, get to the bottom of the problem. There are two things about it. I mean, the people, the point is, if you experience the workplace, you know why you're learning the algebra. So it's not that they have like some grand purpose that came from, you know, again, it's not like life of the mind. They want a job and then they want to be good at the job. And then they see, well, to be good at, I mean, I've heard of dozen kids tell me this or many dozens, you know, once I started to do welding, I understood why I needed math. And then they apply themselves to math. So the why is the why is a concrete why, but it gives them a, a why to learn, a why to apply your mind. I think you're right. Like some, whatever we want to call it, workforce education, I don't really like the word vocational, but some workforce education is very narrowly technical skill based. And I think that's a mistake. I think what you want to try to infuse in every 
partly because it's not good for the human being, but also because it's actually not going to work for the jobs anymore. You've got to infuse this problem-solving, critical thinking, get to the bottom of it skill, because like the jobs that only take technical skill, like robots are going to do them soon. And there's going to be some, you know, fixing of the robots and programming of the robots and stuff like that. But if you can't problem solve, troubleshoot, think to the bottom of something, there's not going to be much for you to do pretty soon. And so more workforce ed programs need to start to have that blend. And that's part of what, what, I mean, again, we should start at the beginning with community colleges, but that's what you can do at a community college if you do it right, because you do have people who teach English and history and blah, blah, blah. And then you do have people that teach welding and nursing and whatever, and you have to figure out how to braid them. But of course, you're right. You need to, just becoming a human widget, so to speak, is not good enough. Yeah. So this is one of the things I really love about working with you, Tamar, is that you can think in both spheres of these kind of narrow technical training issues, as well as these broader kind of connective tissue issues, you know, for the human person. And I think that's great. But you're right. We need to get back to the report. So tell us about the report. What's the content? How did it develop? And what are the sort of key insights and conclusions? Yeah, so again, if you look at this problem of the future of work is coming, the education haves and have-nots is this, this scary nightmare prospect in front of us, and you think about who can, what institution can fix that, right? Like, like how are we going to solve that? <laughs> how are we going to, if, if everybody needs now, increasingly two-thirds need more than high school, who's going to give them more than high school? And community colleges aren't the only institution that can do it, but community colleges, we do have community colleges in, you know, half an hour drive from everywhere in America. You know, they have, they have faculty, they have shops, machine shops, and whatever, what have you. They have the infrastructure. They are the infrastructure that can be the training infrastructure. They have a mixed record, right? Right now, the graduation rate is miserable. Many of them are confused about what they want to be. They kind of want to be everything. And so they end up being nothing. I mean, it's not performing as the most America's most whatever impressive institution right now, but it has the potential to be it. And it has, I'm talking about the sector, it has, there's something to work with there because they're very innovative and they are, or some of them are. So that some of the most exciting innovation in higher ed is going on in community colleges, but it needs to be kind of amplified. So what, what I did is I, what we did is we convened a group of higher ed reformers, sort of bold face name, higher ed reformers and community college educators on the front line of sort of some of these innovations around workforce. And we spent a year together meeting, you know, every six, eight weeks for most of a day and built a consensus around a, a reform manifesto, basically reform manifesto. And the idea is let's build on the innovation going on on colleges, on campuses nationwide, but let's kind of take it to a next level because you can do a reform here and an innovation there, but if you don't kind of rethink your paradigm and commit to a new vision and a new mission, it's not going to add up to as much as it could. And so we recommend a new paradigm and a new vision, and it's, it's sort of provocative. You know, we say that the mission of community colleges, they should stop thinking of, each, of themselves as feeders to four-year institutions, which many of them do think of themselves that way. They should think of themselves as, as workforce unmatched, unparalleled, premier workforce education provider. Their compass should be the labor market around them, not like the, what that four-year school needs or wants. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be a path to a four-year, but it shouldn't, that shouldn't be the guiding principle or the identity sort of of the institution anymore. The metric should be job placement. People should get jobs. <laughs> and the target audience is as much mid-career adults 
as it is young people coming out of high school. Because again, in the future of work, who's going to get thrown out of work and need retraining those mid-career adults? So, you know, rethinking of the mission and the culture and the identity of community colleges and incorporating the reforms that, you know, are already kind of going on out there, the innovations. And so the report is kind of a combination. It's, you know, a hundred page report. It's a combination of a call to action and a manifesto, you know, rethink your vision. And then also, you know, a lot of pages of how to, if you're going to do it, here's how. So tell us about some of the how to. Well, the how to can get kind of granular. It's sort of one of the bigger questions in a way. It's a how to, but it's also one of the bigger questions. You know, people push back and they say, well, wait a minute, what about that are you throwing the part that's about going to, co- to four-year college under the bus? Isn't that important? The transfer function, you know, it's technically called the transfer function. So you've got the workforce function and the transfer function. And as is, community colleges are very mixed. Which are we? Some try to do both. Some are more heavily one, more heavily the other. Transfer is great. For the young people who succeed at transferring and getting a bachelor's, again, they have much better prospects in the labor market. Bachelor's degree is a, is a better ticket to the labor market than, than many other things if you do it in the right major, important if, but if you do it in the right major. But again, you have that problem of the batting average is so bad. 80% want and only 15% make it. So, you know, even if you could double the 15% make it, you'd still have half the, the young people left behind. <laughs> so a transfer and workforce aren't a zero-sum game. They aren't a, it's not a seesaw. One goes up, the other one goes down. You got to fix both. So we gave a lot of thought in our group and in our paper to how do we make sure that it's not a, a seesaw. And this goes back to your concern about kind of well-rounded people and different kind of skills, you know, beyond technical. That's where you get this ability if you're the right, if, you, if the institution does it right, to because you've got the people there who are still preparing people for transfer, and you've got the people there who are preparing people for workforce, you can make courses, you know, and I don't, it's not like the guy who's learning welding should take Shakespeare. He should take the history of the Industrial Revolution, right? Like something that's going to interest him, but where he's going to learn to sort of think about something broader than how to weld. So the transfer and workforce, getting that balance right is something we think a lot about in the paper. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we tend to think of everything in terms of content. You know, like, well, what possible use could that course, what's the connection between that course and the history of the Industrial Revolution to actually doing a job? Americans are very pragmatic, right? right? We want to see as tight and direct a connection between energy expended on education and economic outcomes. And so we, we asked that question, like, what possible use could it be? But the answer is that even from a skill standpoint, that's why you want the history course. It's not right. It's not a content question. It's a right. skill question. It's how to think. You know, a broader context for the work that you're doing is important to actually doing that work. That's, again, kind of you to say. But the other way to think about it, it's like you do a history course, but you can also do, like, you don't have to do communications as writing English papers. You can do it as writing workforce memos or presenting to colleagues or, you know, and again, and people, these young people who are not so young people, incumbents, you know, older, older students too, suddenly there's a reason they want to learn it. I mean, yes, reading them is important too, no question, but that isn't really what they focused on in the English course. You know, nobody talked about the human values we were learning from Shakespeare. They talked about, you know, how to analyze it. That's a different problem in higher ed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but see, I think learning how to analyze things and how to structure a piece of writing, which to me is the same as how to think through a problem, 
that's what I learned. And that's, I mean, yes, it's what, you know, yes, I, you know, I love Shakespeare and I love, I read novels and I big opera fan and I still enjoy it. And it's not all about analyzing it, but the skill I learned was analyzing and getting to the bottom of something. Right. There's still a thing there where you're talking about learning, say, Shakespeare, you're focusing on the pragmatic skills that you gain out of learning Shakespeare. You learn how to analyze, and that that's the value from a workforce standpoint. And what I'm saying is that's part of the value of learning Shakespeare, that in fact, you are also learning about the way that Shakespeare thought about human beings, which the human beings haven't changed very much or don't change very much. And it kind of operates in a deep background, but it's still important to work life as well. But I'm I don't saying. think you have, I don't think reading Shakespeare is the only way to get that. If you have the right kind of family, you get that. If you have faith and you belong to a community and you read the Bible or whatever, I mean, I don't but, you, but you need, my point is that you need that. It's not a nice thing to have, but it's a necessary thing. But it shouldn't have to get taught in school, honestly, or it shouldn't have to get taught at the post-secondary level. Like, people should learn that. I mean, by the time you're 18, you should be learning something useful in your life, I think. I don't know. I mean, I just think that you're on a pathway throughout your life. Yes, you need to learn those things in your family. You need to continue learning them as you mature as a young adult and move into the workforce. It's not a... It's not an either or. It's you oh, know, we need okay. we need that. You know, both, people will so. watch people. People learn things the oddest places, right? People watch movies right. and people, you know, people. I mean, I don't find that people uneducated people are like emotionally or relationally, you know, challenged necessarily. I mean, there are people who are emotionally and relationshipally, you know, whatever the adjective is there in terms of having relationships <laughs> challenged, but it doesn't correlate to education or having read Shakespeare. I don't think. I think there's. I've met a lot of. I mean, I'm going to be now provocative, right? Like, you know, William Buckley said that the first 150 people in the Boston phone book would do a better job of running the country than the Harvard professors. But, you know, I've met as many sort of decent human beings, working class people with very little education as I meet in Washington, people with PhDs. I mean, I don't think there's a link. I'm sorry. I'll I'll push back on that one. So I would say that we've had a real time experiment in that in Buckley's proposition. Um, and it has not go gone all that well. Let's not um, go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Just my last word on this. I don't come from an educated family. I'm first generation to have graduated from college. Among my immediate or extended family, it's just it hasn't been the common experience. So, and and most of those people were are I should say people who work with their hands and do kind of heavy manual labor. So I'm not, I don't come at this as somebody who, like you, went to an Ivy League school, went to a state university and yeah, got a yeah, BA. Yeah. And, and, so and I mean, I don't deny the value of the humanities as a kind of guiding thing in life, right? I mean, that is how I live my life. I haven't been in college in t- nearly 50 years. And I still, you know, again, like I think literature is really important and history is really important. And that's how I understand things. But I don't think I'm a better person because I have that than people who don't. I think people can find what I let get from that other place. Yeah, and, and this is honestly the last thing I'm going to say on this, which is <laughs> it's not about being a better better person, better than what, than a, another person. Obviously not. But 
better in the sense of being happier and more fulfilled and having a broader perspective mm-hmm. and enjoying your life? Maybe. 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 I don't know. I yeah. mean, I get, you know, I get, a, I get a kick out of going to an opera, but somebody else gets a kick out of something else. I don't know. My family got a kick out of going to monster truck rallies. Well, there you uh, go. So, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. it's, it's still about a contest. I'm only kidding. the other important thing about community college is that people don't understand can i do one can i do one really techie deep dive because it's like the heart of it so community colleges people most people don't even know this right it's it's really is called the hidden college most community colleges there's two divisions one division is the part where you go to school like normal and you get credit that later leads towards a degree or can lead you to a four-year college. And the other side of the school is what's called the non-credit department. So like a non-credit part of college, wait, what? The point about the non-credit part, and this is big, there's many students in America in the non-credit side of community colleges that are on the credit side. And most people don't even know exists. And what happens on the non-credit side you don't have to get a course approved by the faculty or by an accreditor. So that means that the non-credit side can be much nimbler in working with employers to set up programs that are what employers need. So I'm company, you know, I make widgets in Peoria and I go to the community college and I say, can you set up a widget making course? And the credit side of the college says, come back in two years. And, you know, we'll find some instructor who sort of knows and maybe we can put something together. The non-credit side says, we start tomorrow. You pick me the instructor. They don't have to have a PhD, whatever, you know, what you need. What And, you know, it shouldn't just be what one company needs. It should be what the industry in this area needs. But so the non-credit department is much nimbler, much more innovative, much more flexible. It doesn't have it needs quality controls. I mean, the quality control right now is mostly like the market. There should be other quality controls. What you want to do if you're going to make community colleges more about workforce is you have to lift up that non-credit side and give it a lot more credibility, make it possible for people to use Pell Grants and government funding to learn there because right now they can't. And you have to have to get some quality control without sort of shackling their nimbleness. And here's the really important thing. You have to make it possible for people who start in non-credit who later want to come over to the credit side and get a degree and go on to four-year. You have to make that bridge really solid and easy to find and easy to do. And right now, none of those things are true. The non-credit department is like the red-headed stepchild. No one cares about it. People think it's not really college. You can't use any federal money to pay for it. So people have to dig into their own pockets really hard, especially in a time like COVID. Those bridges are really hard to find and shaky and don't work very well. So there's a community college, they're sitting on this really interesting asset that many are not using as well as they could. And it's a big feature of our report to say, take that asset and make more of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a super important point about non-credit. And particularly in our current situation, we have a lot of people who are out of work right now and may not be going back to the jobs or even the sectors that they were engaged in after COVID is over. And we really need that nimbleness that you're talking about in terms of design to help people quickly pick up credentials and skills that are relevant to the market. And And we should be be tough about that. We should be like, no one should go back to community college just to learn Java for Java's sake if Java is not the trending coding language, right? We should take advantage of the nimbleness of the non-credit department, create these 
job-focused programs, but they need to be really job-related. They need to be bridges to jobs. You have to have some employer there saying, I want to hire 50 of those people, and I'm going to interview the people that finish here. Like, you have to, we have to be, like, we have to shift in that direction, but we can't just shift in that direction in a kind of loose, no standards, you know, no connection to the labor market, really. They have to be connected to the labor market, not just sort of labor-ish. Yeah, exactly. So one of the points that you make in the report is that community colleges, presumably on both the credit side and the non-credit side, but more, maybe more on the non-credit side, really need better relationships with employers. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So that's kind of a, you know, if you think that the what you call vocational education, you know, career education has like, we're in a new phase now, the new vocational education, you know, as of the last 10 years or so. The cardinal principle of that is you have to be partnering with an employer because otherwise you're just teaching what like the guy at the college knows how to teach. You know, he learned like coding 10 years ago and he's still teaching the coding he used to know, or he knows cosmetology. And so we're teaching cosmetology, whether or not there are any jobs in cosmetology. This cardinal principle is that if you're partnering with an employer, A, they're going to know what skills are needed. B, they're going to know how their industries are changing and, you know, kind of what's ahead. And they're going to be there ready to hire people so that you're not just like producing, again, kind of random widgets that you hope. I mean, the former secretary, Labor Secretary Tom Perez, and now I'm going to mangle his line, but he used to say something like the old model was train and pray, meaning we teach them something and then pray they get a job. The new model is figure out what the jobs are and prepare them for those jobs. And that you needed a partnership with an employer for that. And the closer the partnership, the better. And a lot of, it's, this is conventional wisdom now, and it's in all the legislation, and anybody you talk to about workforce will talk about it. But the problem is, now I'm going back to my liberal arts education, Eskimos have 26 words for snow, and in <laughs> and, and English, there's only one. And the point is, we have a very crude way. We don't really understand snow, right? Eskimos understand there's 26 different kinds, wet, dry, flaky, whatever. Employer engagement is like snow. And it varies from really perfunctory, like I had a meeting with them once a year and they gave me some advice, to really meaningful, like they're shaping the program, they helped me write the curriculum, they promised interviews to the students. And so it's a big area where it's kind of conventional wisdom that we need it, but there needs to be a lot more pressure on it to kind of ratchet it up so it's more meaningful. I mean, I, this is a horrible story I tell, it's a joke, but it's not really a joke, of a community college administrator I met once who said she did focus groups with employers. And I said, focus groups, how can you afford to do that? And she said, well, I went to the Rotary the other day and I sat with three HVAC contractors. I mean, that is not a meaningful relationship. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like you, I have heard this now for decades of, wow, we really need to do better in terms of integrating not just community colleges, but the workforce system generally with employers, you know, tighten those connections, make them better. I gather that since people are still complaining about it all the time, that we haven't made tons of progress on that. When you look around the country at a practical level, for examples of people who are doing a good job with this, who comes to mind? Well, again, this, I mean, there are a lot of good examples, right? And I mean, it's, I don't, I'm a little hesitant to start naming names because there are many. But, you know, just because it's fresh in my mind, this program that I just wrote this other paper about, it was Toyota and four other companies invented it. You know, but I've seen it. I've seen it in many other places. I there's a little program I used to love. I mean, they got they're in trouble now, but Spirit Aerosystems has a great program somewhere. And you know, lots of college, lots of companies are doing this. What works is when 
it's a really close partnership. You plan the program together. Sometimes the employers pick the instructors. Again, they generally pick them out of industry, not out of academia. The employers and the educators, you know, talk once a week, right? And say, how's Susie doing? And, you know, is that instru- how's the instructor doing? And is the curriculum right? And then the employers hire, you know, interview graduates and hire people. And then they come back next year and they say, well, you know what? Those people we hired, you know, were good at this, but not that good at that. You got to beef up that part of the program. And it's not, you don't want to do it for just one employer, right? Like this is not, we're not just turning higher education into the contractors for the employers. I mean, that exists too, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you, it's an industry in the area where you're adding value add because you're helping the industry providing a talent pipeline and it's a talent pipeline that's meaningful and for the students for the learners they're not always young it's a direct route to a good job as opposed to i mean my favorite example is a guy i met in north carolina who had two associates degrees and he'd been floating around in this rural area of north carolina for a decade and he'd worked in meat packing plants and you know tried his own automotive shop and done this and done that and done that and then he finally took a course that was designed by Spirit Aerosystems in partnership with this college, and Spirit was agreeing to interview the graduates, and the guy was now rising up in a big you know, aerospace manufacturing company. Yeah. We've got a few minutes left here, and I want to make sure that we also talk about the case study on City University of New York. So walk us through that a little bit and how it connects to the broader report. Yeah. So again, the broader report is kind of a manifesto. Colleges take up this mission, and here's how. And CUNY is a big system in New York, kind of a storied example of helping people, less advantaged people get to the middle class, right? You know, from the guy who founded Intel on and on. They used to run ads in the subways from, you know, they didn't say the ghetto, but from the ghetto to Rhodes Scholar. But they haven't been at the cutting edge of some of this workforce innovation. They're very focused on the community colleges. There's a half a million people in the system, a quarter million of them in community colleges. And the focus for the community colleges has been very much get them to the four-year colleges. And again, that's great when it works, but it wasn't working there any better than it works anywhere else. 80% of the people who showed up wanted a BA and 15% ended up getting one. And the point is, if you get out of a community college, either with an associate degree with no labor market value, which an associate degree in psychology has no labor market value, or if you get out of community college with no degree, you might as well not have gone to community college, right? <laughs> Unless you learned a skill. So our work in New York, we're trying to look at the real circumstances in New York, not just sort of general, you know, what employers really need to hire. What is it about the system that has made it resistant to change or makes it resistant to change? What are the good things that the system can build on? New York is unique in a lot of ways. It has an amazing philanthropic sector that's created an amazing kind of nonprofit training sector. How can CUNY work with them? So we're trying to, you know, roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty, apply those big ideas in the big report to CUNY. And this paper was a, this is a bigger project also. We're, this is a big 18 month project. We're still in the middle of it. But when COVID struck, you know, I saw an opportunity to kind of do a kind of interim paper in that project and say, hey, CUNY, here's really an opportunity to step up and turn some things around, you know, focus on retraining for COVID. And the chancellor of CUNY is a really impressive guy. And he has said, you know, I want to go in the, in the direction you're talking about, not at the sacrifice of what else we do, but I want to do more of what you're talking about. So we're independent of them. They're not paying us or anything, but we're kind of writing a consultant report for them. Here's a roadmap. 
if you want to go in this direction. Well, that's terrific. I think that'll be an incredibly valuable thing, not just for that school, but for schools more broadly out there in the country who are all going to be, you know, every regional economy in the country is going to be grappling with similar issues, I think, coming out of COVID. So I really look forward to seeing that when it's ready. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this has been a terrific discussion. You know, it brings home to me again, just the vital place that our community colleges and other vocational and technical career educational institutions have in our country. They've always been vital, but as we just said, you know, it's even more vital now. So thanks so much for coming on tomorrow and for talking us through this. It was a very interesting discussion, one that I want to continue with you, particularly around that question of liberal arts education and its place in preparing people for the world of work. Let me add a little footnote. I mean, I appreciate, I'll say thank you too in a second, but let yeah. me take a few seconds. I'll add a, I'll respond to that in a footnote. You're also right that it can't, I mean, we said this, but it's worth reiterating at the end, just technical skills are not enough. I mean, people really do need to learn. These programs need to, many of them need to be broadened to teach both, you know, what I call kind of the softer, the lower order soft skills, you know, show up, stand up, behave, and the higher order soft skills, that problem solving. So your, your corrective is not wrong. That is really, really important because, you know, again, for human reasons and for the whole person and that, and that which is important, but also because the jobs are going to require that. People are going to need to be both have a work ethic, obviously, but also be able to think and be able to problem solve. And that is going to be more and more and more the imperative. And it's, it's what we got to teach. You know, the welding technology will change next year, like, and the coding will change. How to think, how to adapt how to problem solve, that's really still the focus of education. Terrific. Thanks, Tamara. And we'll have you back on when this next report is done so that everybody can get the benefit of your thinking on this. Well, my pleasure, Brent. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast, let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.